So we've been practicing together for just a little over a day. And uh, we arrive at this time in the evening. It's uh, a good time to reflect a little on what we've been engaging in, how it's been going, kind of how it might be useful to look at it or to consider it, the process and the experience that's happening here. I think one of the things that's very curious, of course, is that we often arrive at this point in the day and it's kind of like, oh, made it, you know, got this far. And it can seem like it's pretty hard work, demanding in all sorts of ways. And yet if we were to explain to our friends at home who'd never done this, you know, so, wow, it was really hard that first day, we might have said. Or we might have actually already had the conversation in our mind with them, which some of us will have done. Um, we might have it when we get home. And, and it's like, and they say, wow, it was really hard. What, what, was it, what happened? And you say, well, we had to sit on a cushion for, you know, 30, 40 minutes. And they told us not to do anything. Just notice what happens. And then we had to walk back and forth. And they said, don't go anywhere. Just, you know, walk back and forth. And stand around for a little while. Sit down again. Have some lunch. Do it all again in the afternoon. Oh, it was hard work. <laughs> and it's kind of, it doesn't quite make sense, does it? And yet, for many of us, or often, it can be the experience that what's happening here is challenging to us. And I think it's really useful and important to understand that this rather simple and perhaps deceptively simple process that you're being invited to engage in, in its simplicity, is not easy, for sure. This is one of the most demanding and challenging things that we can ask ourselves to undertake, to actually really meet our experience, ourselves, our lives, right here. And it's good to honour that. And when we come to the end of a sitting, it's not something anybody else has to do, but I know, I feel myself moved just to take a moment to to express in this traditional form a sense of my gratitude, my appreciation for just the fact that <laughs> you're still there, you know, because you could equally not be. And sometimes I might wonder <laughs> how on earth it is one is still here. This is an expression in the Buddhist tradition of just honouring, of gratitude, of appreciation. At the end of a sitting, having sat many times as we are all sitting here, but myself, when I've been on a retreat, and it's like, oh, made it. There's something really important about honouring what we're doing here. Honouring ourselves, honouring this process. And what I'd like to reflect on this evening is really what we are doing here. And what, as I would see it, or one way we could talk about it, describe it, articulate it, is that we're exploring what it means to, to know peace, to discover to understand, not peace as a kind of an experience that I want to have, but what is it that leads us to that which we long for most deeply? What is it that would allow us to come to that place where we can, in a way, rest or pause or stop having to look for something to be different than it is or for ourselves to be different than we are? 
And the, the foundations of this possibility are really what were at the heart of the Buddha's teachings. And something that for myself have been so profoundly and beneficially transformative to my life that when I come to speak about it in the evening, again, I like to just take a moment and in the traditional way just bow and express my gratitude and appreciation to the Buddha who had some challenges in his life, it would seem, if one reads the stories of his time and yet was so committed and dedicated in his practice and so incredibly... Um, compassionate and spending many, 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 many years teaching people, sharing with people, guiding and supporting people to explore and discover for themselves what he had understood. And which is part of how we, how I and you and we come to be sitting here. And so there's this, this sense of starting for me with a, with a place of just appreciating and acknowledging and some sense of gratitude for even my existence, for all its complications and difficulties that allowed us to find our way here. It means there's some moderate degree of functionality that we've uh, managed to access or develop. And the, the path that the Buddha spoke of and we talk about in the title for this retreat, A Path of Peace and Kindness, the Buddha spoke about this path as having three primary elements. And there's many different ways he talked about it. Sometimes he had three different ones than these, or sometimes it has eight. But one way one can talk about it is uh, to use the language of the, the ancient language of Pali in which the Buddha's teachings were recorded. It would be Dana Sila Bhavana, which translates as generosity, non-harming, and Developing what is wholesome, we could say. And this path of practice is essentially concerned with this, with bringing about what it is that we, as human beings, are naturally interested in and deeply concerned with, which is the deepest well-being. The Buddha once said, this, this path, is a path of happiness which leads to the highest happiness and the highest happiness is peace and this practice we call insight meditation I see it and I find it most useful to sort of think about it as really training for that training for happiness training for peace understanding that this isn't something that just happens to us if we're lucky or we miss out on it if we're not lucky. It's actually something that arises through causes and conditions and lawful processes, which if we don't understand, we haven't got much chance, unless we are very lucky, of somehow finding our way to that. But if we do understand, it doesn't require luck. Even in the face of difficult or unfortunate circumstances, if we know how this thing works, and I'm talking about this thing, human being, how this thing works, then we can actually find that possibility. We can come to know for ourselves what that might be, can be, in fact is. And so this, this quality of, of generosity, uh, the language of the, the Buddhist teaching, we talk about dana and this, this retreat, is dana retreat. It's offered because of the sense of 
the gratitude for these teachings being here, wanting to share them. And so this retreat is offered at minimal cost, essentially just so that everybody actually pays something, which means they're more likely to turn up. We used to offer it for absolutely no upfront charge, and then too many people just didn't bother to show up. Strangely, that's how it works in our culture. But that sense of wanting to offer something, wanting to offer something, that's what generosity expresses, wanting to share something in support of what we value, what we care about. And sila, this quality of non-harming, to acknowledge the shared sensitivity of life, how we all feel, how we all care, everything, and to have as a basic principle for how we choose to live, that we would wish to do to others as we would wish to be done to ourselves. We'd wish to be with others as we would wish others to be with us. Because we have all the information for how beings wish to be treated in our own sense of how we would wish to be treated. It's not too complicated. And then bhavana. Bhavana is the third of these limbs, we can say, of dhanasila bhavana, of um, generosity, non-harming, and developing the wholesome. And it's interesting, bhavana has been translated for most of us, and as we would have probably first encountered it, certainly as I did, in the Buddha's teachings, translated as meditation, which is a word that comes from a very different kind of world, actually, and often has a sort of a kind of a focusing on or a kind of a cerebral orientation to it, in fact, like meditating on, like thinking about. And then we start to think meditation means not thinking about, and neither of those are actually the point of meditation, thinking about or not thinking about. Bhavana translated more, I think, accurately and usefully actually means to bring into being. I think it's a beautiful phrase. That sense of we're engaged in a process of bringing into being that which is wholesome. We can talk about cultivating, we can talk about developing, and we can also talk about discovering. Because all of these are elements of the process of bringing into being what is wholesome. the wholesome qualities of heart, of mind, of this human life, the, the, the possibilities, the potential. This can be developed, cultivated, discovered, and oriented in such a way as that which is supportive of happiness and well-being. It's strengthened and deepened. And that which leads to the opposite, is no longer reinforced and is ultimately let go of. Because the condition of our heart and our mind matters to us, how we feel, how we experience. This actually matters more to us than anything at all. Now that might be surprising if we hear that, because you might think, oh no, no, some really important things matter most to me. But in fact, if we look, what we'll notice is that they matter most to me because of how I anticipate or experience feeling as a result of it being so or not so. I'd really love there to be world peace. I'd be happy to be miserable if there would be world peace, we might say. I would actually sign up for that. It would be a, a small sacrifice. But the truth is that me being miserable and causing world peace by doing it would actually make me happier. You follow how that works? 
And it's kind of like that for everything that we're concerned about. The condition of our heart mind is at the center of all of this. And yet we don't know how that condition comes to be, mostly, if we haven't been taught. It's certainly not something we get trained about in school or in our cultural sort of social sort of training. We don't learn how the heart and mind finds peace and happiness. This is the realm of spiritual teaching. And so in the Buddha's teaching, one of the first elements that he pointed out, he said, want to know how we find peace and happiness in our heart and mind? Generosity. Sharing. The power of giving, the power of sharing. It's something that has a remarkable capacity to uplift us. And the Buddha would often invite people who he encountered. When sometimes they would ask, what was he on about? You know, this now famous teacher as he became. And he wouldn't necessarily jump in with instructions for meditation, you know, pay attention to your breathing, or some profound wisdom teachings about sort of uh, emptiness and freedom. He'd actually sometimes just say, so what's it like for you when someone gives you something freely? And say, oh, it's kind of nice, it's lovely, isn't it? Someone gives me something. What's it like for you if you feel moved and able to give something to someone else just freely? Oh, that's kind of lovely too. Oh, yeah, it is, isn't it? And it's like the sense of, oh, generosity is something, whether we receive it or whether we are actually the vehicle for it, that actually is beautiful and uplifting for our hearts. And one of the things, you know, sometimes say in practice, well, it's great if you can, you know, practice sort of really deep, profound meditation. But sometimes that's not possible. It's always possible to find a way to make an offering, to give something. And this is actually a practice that's encouraged, that's invited in this teaching, to find ways to give, to share. It uplifts our heart and it brings us into contact with both our sense of what we value and care about and and it allows us or invites us also to contemplate what we've received, to start from a place of, to acknowledge, well, actually my life was given to me. Because it is. I wasn't here to pay for it when it happened. I didn't sign a contract that says, yeah, I'll give you X amount of something and if you give me life, I'll do that deal with you. No. I mean, sometimes we kind of wish, I wish someone had asked me. I'm not sure I said yes, you know. But it didn't happen that way. It's like, here I am. Here it is, this is life. And for all the challenges of it, there is also that which we might recognize as as precious. For all the difficulties and the struggles and the confusion and the pain, we might also recognize that which we're grateful for, for this existence. And that sense of coming into contact with that and then, oh, maybe there's ways I'd like to offer something in return. It doesn't have to be an exchange in return. It's more the natural expression of gratitude in receiving something we often want to want to give something. Like when I see a wild creature in, 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 in the woods or somewhere, and there's always this sense of, it's like, wow, how lovely, I feel so touched by it. Even if it's just a squirrel that stops and looks at me, or if it's a larger creature, if you encounter a deer that just pauses. I was teaching in America just um, a couple of weeks ago, and crossing the road in front of Catherine and I, um, my wife, one point, a deer and her, um, not quite, fawn but young and obviously offspring maybe a sort of 
six, eight, twelve months old, not fully grown. And they just stopped and looked at us. And it's like, it's just so lovely that I, I know immediately I want to go and give them some food. I feel it. Of course, I know it's not a good idea to because if I feed them human food, it's bad for them. But that sense of it's just a natural, I find, response. If we haven't been told, oh dear, are dirty and you know, you'll catch an infection, don't go near them. We can get scared out of those responses. What if they take advantage of you? We can be scared out of those responses, but I think they're quite natural for us. And that's, so that, that sense of oh, receiving and giving, they actually come together, they go together. And this is actually very relevant to what we're doing here. It's not just about in the world and in our lives, where of course that is important and something quite beautiful and blessed to be in a process of sharing what we have of our life with others in ways that give rise to things we value and care about. But also here on a retreat, what are we doing? You know, we've probably all got a memory or some version of a memory of being in a schoolroom and a teacher saying something like, pay attention. Or a parent saying, pay attention, I'm talking to you, boy. And it's like, pay attention. Oh, that's interesting, pay attention. My attention is currency, and I'm being told to pay. Like, oh, so I don't get an option here, pay it. Like, give me your money. Oh, it's a hold up. You know, I'm being robbed. I'd rather be thinking about the fun I'm planning on having this weekend. But no, pay attention to your maths. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And it's like, oh, interesting. In our language, there's a, there's a key to something here. Attention is incredibly valuable. It's the thing we want. I mean, the right kind of attention, that's what we want from people, isn't it? Please give me your kind attention. I would like that. Sometimes I, that phrase is actually what one of my colleagues would say when beginning giving a Dharma talk. Please give me your, your kind attention. So, you know, don't fall asleep. Don't do meditation while we're doing this. I'd like you to listen to what I'm saying. But it's also, I'd like your attention. If it's a kindly attention. And there's a way in which attention is like... It's currency. We recognize something of value by giving attention to it. We actually give it or acknowledge or honor its value by attending to it. And just as we like receiving it, when we give it to something, it has an effect. We might say, you know, well, you know, you can't, you can't weigh it on a scale or measure it with a ruler. What's this thing called attention? But we know it, don't we? This human organism actually registers it as a primary phenomena. In fact, we can't survive without it. And yet, this relationship to paying attention, if we come in meditation and we think, I'm trying to pay attention, of course, there's some other things we'd like to buy with our attention that look like they're going to be way more fun than this. And that's a lot of what we end up doing. We spend our precious currency on all the other things that look entertaining or seem important that might make a difference for my life. And yet if we talk about this, and this is how we might suggest it and how I sometimes like to phrase the meditation, like, what is it to give attention? Oh, well that's different. Rather than pay attention, sort of 
Okay. It's more like, give attention. Oh, oh. Why would I want to do that? Oh, it's telling me that maybe I want to value what I'm paying attention to. My experience. Also, my heart, my mind, my body, my life. Oh, if I don't pay attention to it, I'm actually giving my life and myself the message this isn't particularly a value of importance. What's important is those stories and those things that I'm busy thinking about all the time. Because it's currency. And we're trading it all the time. And so, without having to think about it, you don't need to understand this for it to work, which is actually really helpful. Because um, I don't think I understood it this way for a long, long time. Um, but the sense of attention is something given. It's, oh, it's an offering. It's a given. And it has a quality, when we learn what it means to give this in a skillful way, it has a sort of openness and open-heartedness and open-handedness. So giving, as a quality, has the sense of just offering something. I was t today in the small group just trying to illustrate the process between sort of being too engaged and not engaged enough. And I found my hands, sometimes they're ahead of my brain and my conceptual thing of they sort of it's like this is sort of holding our experience with attention and then there's the bit where we kind of give up and we just drop it you know and can't be bothered and there's the times where I've got it like this and I'm hanging on to it and it was really interesting because actually with my hands and holding and that sense of these that can hold that can drop but that can also kind of have this sense of a this kind of quality which is sort of like a giving and a supporting that this is actually what we're learning to do with our attention, to our experience, to our life. And in that, we're actually giving ourselves the simple message because we're acting on it. Not because we're thinking it. Thinking it doesn't help. But we're acting on the basis that what I'm giving attention to has value. And therefore giving attention to me or to my experience, I'm actually offering value to this. I'm trusting its value. I'm trusting its significance. And of course, this experience that we're having, this is our life. This is that precious thing. Because our life isn't other than all these experiences that we're having, that we have been having for two or three or a few more decades, and that we will continue to have for, if we're fortunate, quite a few more decades, and maybe not. And so this, this quality of generosity actually is, is in not just external actions of you know, giving things, but it's actually in the way we practice, when we practice skillfully. And it's just useful to, to understand that in terms of giving attention to life, because life has been given to us. It kind of goes together when we have that appreciation and acknowledgement. Oh, okay, yeah. Because, wow, it's kind of amazing that life here exists. And it's been given. And it, also we can understand it as this open-heartedness, this open-handedness as a way of engaging as being quite the opposite of what the Buddha spoke of as essentially fundamental in the process and experience of of suffering, of struggle, of pain, of what we might wish to be free of, to be liberated from, which we can talk of in terms of the way we become fixated upon or attached, and this is the word we might use, attached to experience, with either demanding it be a certain way or demanding it 
not be a certain way, which are the flavors of craving for or aversion against. That says it must be like this or it must not be like this. And it's interesting that the word that the Buddha used for talking about this tendency where we contract around things. And I don't know if you've noticed any of that happening today. Maybe it's not what you do, but um, most of us do quite a lot of that. Quite a lot of that's what's going on when we're not being present, one way or another. We're involved with trying to get or get rid of, to control and manipulate experience. And the, the Buddha spoke of this, and the word, that he used, very interesting, is upadana. Now, I'm not an expert on Pali. I'm not a scholar of Pali, but some of my friends are. So sometimes I hear things that really I go, wow. This word breaks down in the following way. Dana is the root of it. Generosity, that quality, that word that many of you will know well. And ah, dana. Ah is a negator, so it's non-generosity. Up. Adana up is an intensifier, so it's very strong, not generosity or not open handedness. To just take that word and slightly unpack what it means to have the hands open, not tight. Very strong, not open handedness. That's attachment. That's the root of how we get entangled in suffering. So, oh, that's interesting. So, generosity is actually also the antidote. Because it's very strong, not generosity, that's at the root of the problem. So it's significant in that regard also. And the second area of attention the Buddha spoke of, of of sila, non-harming. This orientation in life born of recognizing the shared sensitivity, the shared preciousness, the shared vulnerability of all of life. That we are all in this together and our experience is not so different in certain fundamental elements from the experience of each other being, every person and every creature and all living things in fact. And you know, to encounter a small creature and to contemplate that this tiny being's life is as precious to it as my life is to me is to to actually start to see and look very differently upon the world of living things and I, I in that you know we might well it doesn't think about it surely you know it just gets on and does what it does but actually if you ever notice what it's like if you present a threat to a small creature you know, poke your finger slowly towards an ant, it runs to preserve its existence. Just as I would if something that much bigger than me came and started doing that. I'd be heading out, I should think. And it's like, oh. Oh, it's like that for other creatures. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Just as I wish to not experience pain. So too, it doesn't. They don't. We don't. This is shared. One of the really beautiful things that can happen sometimes in the small groups where we can feel so isolated in our struggles and our pain and our lives and all of that. And sometimes what we hear is people sharing of their difficulties and challenges and it's so touching because we both realize, oh, it's not just me who has these difficult things in my life at times. 
sometimes really difficult, but also that, oh, we're all these kind of sensitive, caring creatures who don't necessarily yet fully understand how to handle skillfully that condition. But we know that we are impacted profoundly by it. And so with that sensitivity, with that recognition, then the injunction and the guidance and the teaching here is, is actually to recognize that our actions impact others and ourselves. This isn't news to us. We know that. But sometimes we don't always fully take on what that means. All beings want freedom from harm. We and they. And what we say, what we do, and also what we think has an impact. And one of the heart elements of the Buddha's teaching is to recognize that this is so. That actions have an effect. And that our heart and our mind, the condition of our heart and our mind is actually dependent upon our intentional actions. And intentional actions can be actions of thought, of speech, and of body. And if we look, if we contemplate for ourselves, if we see when we've acted from a place of selfish neediness or greed, or from a sense of anger and irritation and disregarding our impact on others, we can easily cause suffering and pain for other people, other beings. And if we contemplate that, we might find some real sorrow or remorse in our hearts. Oh, wow. You know, sometimes I've done things, and I'm, this isn't, I'm not saying this theoretically, I've done things which I realize, wow, that caused some harm. I'm really sorry. I got a bit irritated with that person. And actually I said something that was unnecessary. And unhelpful and painful to them that happens to me sometimes and if I notice it if I realize it's happened I'll try and go back and say oh my gosh I realize what happened I'm sorry but it still happened and sometimes I may not realize it that's just at a in a way a simple level in a way to see oh we impact each other and if we're conscious of that impact we actually feel how painful it is to have done things which harm each other harm others or ourselves. It can be deep suffering, some of the most painful things we encounter. One of the things that happens when we're meditating is we encounter our life, as we've said. And some of it is the things we may not have remembered from all sorts of strange places in our life that somehow pop up in our mind. Because in some way they're still carrying something for us. And we might remember things of, oh gosh, wow, yeah, I did that. Hmm. Maybe we're far enough beyond it to not be thinking, and I should have because that person was really horrible to me. But it's like, oh, actually, it's, I feel the pain in myself from being caught in my reactivity and the pain of in feeling like I should cause harm to another or not caring if I did because I was so trying to get what I needed and I just didn't think about somebody else. This has a profound effect on the capacity we have for feeling at peace in ourselves and with ourselves. A lot of what we encounter 
when we're sitting in meditation, if we haven't done this a lot, and even when we have done it a lot, that's distressing to us, that's destabilizing to us, that generates restlessness or unease, an absence of peacefulness, is the way our mind regurgitates, ruminates, reflects on situations of conflict, situations of harm that we have been involved in, either that we've been impacted in ourselves or that we've impacted others in. And so we, we use the precepts here as a support for inner well-being, for safety and for peace, not just to protect others, although they do, and so importantly, as we've, as we've spoken about, but also because it's actually a self-protection. It's a protection for our own heart to know that I am committed to not causing harm to others so far as I possibly can. Bearing in mind, of course, that we can't do anything in some kind of perfect way that never impacts anything. Of course, to exist, we impact. And the only way we could not impact anything is to stop existing, in which that case something's got impacted, which is me. So there's no way around that, to live in this world as a human being. But to have the intention to refrain from doing that in any way and so far as possible, to minimize harm. This brings us a degree of inner peace that is not available through exciting or sort of uh, spectacular meditation experiences. Sometimes we think we're meditating for the, the highs, the big, the big one that we've heard about. When it happens and it's like, wow. Yeah, that was it. I read about that in the books. Very nice. Those things can happen. They don't generally last. But actually more fundamental to transforming a human heart is that commitment to non-harming. And the ground it places underneath our heart that we can rest on of just actually having done the best we can with that. Not that we do it perfectly and taking care to try and go back and sort of clean up where we might have made a bit of a mess of it, where we're able to, but just doing what we can. If we're not conscious, if we're not present, if we're not awake as we go through our life, then we keep on enacting habits and patterns that lead to us causing harm to others and ourselves. So we practice being awake, to be present, to start to notice how those processes get set in motion and how we can actually step out of those mechanisms and not be compelled to reenact behaviors that lead us into actions that cause harm to others and to ourselves. Because we can't just stop. It's curious, isn't it? We've noticed, we may have seen already even today, oh, it really isn't helpful when I think about all those things about how I could have done something better. It's really not helpful for me, but can I stop doing it? Not just by seeing that that doesn't help. I need to understand something more. And of course, understanding is part of what comes as we start to see more deeply and clearly into our experience. And it's, it's important in this that, that we, we hold this thing of this, this, this orientation of non-harming within the context of a process of learning. That, of course, we make mistakes. That's how we learn. There is no other way to learn apart from making mistakes. So we don't do it perfectly. 
but to to set our compass to create an orientation in life in this way there is perhaps nothing else that can make such a difference to the possibility of inner peace as this because all the deeper developments of spiritual unfoldment rest upon it without that orientation and commitment to to non-harming the mind doesn't really get quiet because these things will keep agitating it the imprints in the heart and mind of harmful action create agitation that's one of the reasons why we seek to give it up not just because we don't want to harm others but because we understand actually it harms me it creates distress and disturbance and therefore makes it harder to settle and so of course then there's a place for some remorse for forgiveness for the fact that of course we didn't know that to begin with and we're just doing our best to make our way and okay there was a few things that happened that I really wish didn't so really important to find some forgiveness for ourselves it's like the idea that we should know better no the only way we know better is by messing up and being willing to learn from it that's kind of the only way sometimes if we're lucky we can learn from someone else having messed up but often we have to do it ourselves to figure out how the heck that happens And the sense of what the Buddha talked about is a state of non-regret based on this. That's really at the heart of a sense of what it is to have inner peace. It's not about a pride or an arrogance, look how good I was or how well I did. But it's more having done the best one could with regard to this. To live one's life in accord with what we value and what's important. Which has to include this recognition of our own human sensitivity and the shared nature of that with all of life and so these two dana and sila generosity and non-harming which are sometimes a little bit skipped over in the process of getting onto the real stuff meditation are actually essential to it foundations for it and profoundly transformative in themselves and so then what the Buddha described as bhavana the, what we bring into being here what we're engaged in here to cultivate, to develop, to discover there's a lot that could be spoken about because that's everything else of this whole path of which there is a lot to say and we're always battling with the sort of the, the balance between telling you as many things as we'd like to tell you and actually giving yourself some time to practice and uh, discover for yourselves what's happening here. So I'll try and be concise and apologize if I fail at it, because I usually do. The first thing in terms of what we're cultivating is this quality of mindfulness, of presence, of just kind of gatheredness of being here-ness that's founded on the intention to try and do so and the acknowledgement that quite a lot of the time that intention isn't going to be what happens and making peace with that not beating ourselves up or hassling ourselves for the fact that although I'm intending to be present a good amount of the time I'm just not and I'm intending not to be 
enacting patterns of reactivity and a good amount of the time I just am because that's what happens to begin with and not just at the beginning I have to say but actually just understanding that there's a process of training and development here to bring something into being to cultivate a garden you don't just go out there and throw some seeds in the ground and say hey where are my vegetables where are my flowers no there's a process it takes time it takes work it takes understanding and one of the images that can be really useful is training of heart and mind it's like training a puppy that well, when it's a puppy it just wants to run away and do what it wants to do because that's what puppies do and so to train a puppy you just keep calling it back come back here come back here come back here and it runs away again pretty quickly. Now, if every time it comes back, you hit the puppy with a stick and say, bad dog, pretty soon it's going to get away at the first opportunity. That's what our mind does. If we give ourselves a hard time for getting lost, we stop wanting to even notice we got lost because we know we're going to get a hard time. So we try not to even see that that's what's happening. Whereas if every time the puppy runs off, it goes off to you know chase a butterfly it's like come back here it's gone off to water a tree um, okay come back here. Oh, it's just done that oh my gosh okay come back here but we make it a place of kindness that we invite it back to it's like after a while the puppy starts to think oh this person's quite friendly i think i'll hang around here and the attention is just the same so oh we create an environment of kindness and care but also clarity and certain gentle firm gentle Firm, gentle, gentle, firm, discipline. Interesting, that balance. We can only find that for ourselves by playing with it and getting it wrong. There's no other way. How much firmness, how much gentleness. But we can find that because we can feel it when it's working, when it comes into balance. And then the mind starts to become more like a light rather than just a sort of general haze in which we're not sure what's going on. And then actually it becomes like a torch. We can direct and we can point and oh, look at this. It's even got a focus on it. Whoa, I can make the light really clear and precise. And then I can put it over there and look at that. Wow. When we're training, just putting it here, just putting it here, just putting it here. It's like training to be able to put it where we choose to put it. It's a muscle we develop to say oh I can just focus in on this moment or I can just expand it out and feel the whole body or even the whole room okay the mind will do this like a camera you can open up the aperture you can close it down they have different advantages and limitations whichever way you do it you can start to learn how that works feeling the way in which when it does gather and settle there's a kind of a ah. now I imagine it's quite possible that for quite a few of you maybe many of you there's been the odd moment like that here where it's just like ah actually I'm here I've landed despite all the fact of how much I wasn't landed it doesn't really matter you know there's a saying from India the light of a single candle will dispel a thousand years of darkness it's like it doesn't matter how long we were gone where we'd gone it's like oh we're back we're here huh. and in a moment where we really land it's like oh we maybe start to get a sense of there's an intimation of what's possible 
those moments of peacefulness where we're not trying to get somewhere where the pull to the past and the future has started to soften or just for a brief moment paused seeing how much of that is caught up with trying to sort of control our experience to make sure we get what we want and don't get what we don't want trying to figure out the past how the bad things happen so I make sure they don't get repeated trying to figure out the past how the good things happen so I can make sure they do get repeated that's a lot of what goes on in our mind and within that at the same time this whole process of in a way establishing creating configuring trying to fix a sense of me according to how I would wish me to be and that's a lot of why such importance arises for us in our experience it's not just that I'd quite like to have a nice meditation experience because I would but because if I have a nice meditation experience then I could say I'm a good meditator if I'm a good meditator then actually maybe I'm a good human being maybe I'm just good oh I say want to be good in my mind I've just realized I've been thinking about being a good meditator it's all over the place I'm a bad meditator and then I start to feel like I'm a bad human being so it becomes really important to be a good meditator because I don't realize I'm taking this experience to define me but it doesn't it's just showing oh the mind is distractible right now which doesn't mean that the mind is untrained it just means that whatever is there is stronger than the amount of training about or capacity it might be a very steady mind but if you let off some dynamite just outside the window we go bah! if the mind is not so well trained then it just takes a little tickle and we go mm. but whatever it is wherever it is it can be trained more and this is the potential of this practice to train this heart and mind to make space for what's here and to see how much of what's going on is born out of the sense of looking for something else or looking somewhere else the idea that I've got to have a different and better experience a different and better body a different and better retreat different and better teacher different and better cushion different and better mind I need to be a different and better me that's what that's saying when I'm trying to have a different and better experience I'm trying to have a different and better me actually we're all stuck with the one we've got this experience and this me in a sense it's not a fixed solid thing but that's the one we got right now both the experience and the me that's having it And not putting that much pressure and weight on what's happening. Just, oh, it's just what's happening. Look, it happens like this. It happens like this. When I imagine that if I can get this experience or get rid of that experience and that's going to do it for me. How many times have we done that already in our life to find out that it didn't do it for me? Maybe there's something else we could discover. And really that's what we're here for. Learning to meet all our experience as it is. The practice of, of meditation is, is we, the word the Buddha used was sati. Remembering is one of the translations equally as 
mindfulness as a translation, and the common translation being mindful. Sort of that sense of remembering where we are. So there's a remembering in it, knowing where we are directly, remembering it, knowing what's happening, remembering it. There's another quality, another way in which this word, what this evokes, to understand remembering. It's not just the opposite of forgetting, but remembering is the opposite of dismembering. That's got another whole feeling to it, hasn't it? Oh, when kind of bits get <laughs> dismembered. And the way when we don't give attention to the wholeness of our life, but we only are willing to feel some and not other parts, it has the effect of dismembering. And we feel the fragmentation of that in our experience. It's profoundly unpeaceful because it's actually the loss of wholeness. And wholeness is, of course, the outcome of healing, which we long for. And it's also the foundation of holiness, which we might be called towards. And wholeness requires including everything. It doesn't mean we have to pick everything up or do all the things with everything that our mind might want to, like fix it or get rid of it or manipulate it. But while we're focusing and gathering the attention, we're also being called to open to our experience. When it comes, it comes. Sometimes we can just let it be or let it go. Let it be if it's something that's uncomfortable. Let it go if it's something we want to hold on to. That's a useful way to understand it. If I think I've got to let go of something unpleasant, we sort of think it should go away when I let go of it. But that's not how it works. Letting go means letting go of the urge to control the experience by either keeping it or getting rid of it. Just letting it do what it does because experience is fluid and alive and it comes and goes. Not in our control, but we can influence how we are with it by giving our attention to it. By not seeking to do any harm to anything that emerges in our heart or our mind. Not just our world, not just the beings out there or this being as the me we think of, but all the things that appear, not doing harm to these either. The thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the images, even the things we find scary or unpleasant or even distasteful or threatening. Just, no, we don't want to do harm to them either. Can we hold them in care and in kindness? And to find that we can connect with all things. That each moment offers us this possibility, that all experiences offer us this. And in that deepening of connection, in that giving ourselves to, in that not doing harm to the very living moment that we inhabit, we can come to know a profound depth of peace and well-being. In the midst of this life just as it is, with this heart, this mind and body not so different than they are, So I'd like to finish with a short poem from Rio Khan, who was a, uh, uh, a monk, a poet, and a rather delightful character, a, a hermit, and uh, 
um, a teacher in, the, in Japan in the Middle Ages, uh, Ryo Khan, he said, he wrote, let's just sit for a moment, it might come back to me. The rain has ended, the storm has passed, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself. And then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way. So may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we, may we develop and grow in these areas of, of importance, of, of generosity, of non-harming, of the bringing into being what is wholesome for our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.